gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. In the grand tradition of counter-programming against annoying and exhausting political stories where there isn't much new to say because everyone's already said it, we're going in a different direction today. And we're having a friend of mine, if this was a 1970s uh, public service ad on kids' television, I would refer to um, my guest today as my gay friend, <laughs> but... Uh, and then my grandfather would explain to me that that was prejudiced because if he's your friend, you shouldn't say your gay friend. There was a commercial in the seventies. You're too young to remember this, Jamie, but, uh, where they did this, where this kid was fishing with his grandpa. And he said, my, uh, the grandpa says something like, and who's Timmy? And the kid says, Timmy's my Jewish friend. <laughs> and then grandpa has to explain that you shouldn't have to call him your Jewish friend. He's just your friend. So, um, and, uh, anyway, Jamie is, He's a man of many talents, and he knows a lot of things about a lot of things, and normally we would be prattling on about things like foreign policy and whatnot. He also wrote um, a hugely successful, much-discussed, much-beloved, across-the-ideological-spectrum book called Secret City, The History of Gay Washington. It's the hidden history. Did I say did the, I hidden, the hidden history? history? I, I apologize. Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. I suppose the hidden is an yeah. important component of that. Um, I'm sorry, I had to do... CNN this morning at 6 a.m. So basically, you're just a giant butterfly to me. <laughs> James Kerchick is a columnist for Tablet Magazine, a writer at large for Airmail, and a non-resident fellow, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. His last book was The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age, which I believe I had you on to talk about that back then. Or maybe it was your Soros Argo. I can't remember. Uh, the longest period of time we spent together, just to, 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 to tell people some, the weirdness, is you were on that junket to Israel that I was on, along with Elise Stefanik. That's which right. Which I had completely forgotten for about seven years until someone pointed out to me that she was that quiet, mousy girl who didn't say much <laughs> on that trip. And I was like, oh my gosh, people change. So We clearly had a major impact on her on that trip, given how she's turned out. No. I wouldn't put it down in the success column, but uh, <laughs> that's a conversation for another day. So you wrote this, my producer Adam has been bugging me and I was happy to do it, uh, to have you on to come basically talk off, talk about um, this really great essay you wrote for Liberties last year called From Queer to Gay to Queer. We're not going to do a textual exegesis of it, but I think it's a good starting off point. So why don't you just sort of take as long as you like to sort of explain the thesis and where you were coming from in that, um, in that article. Well, it was looking at the evolution of the gay movement and also, I would say, the status of, of gay people in American society from the middle of the 20th century to the present day. Um, and just looking at the title, you know, gay people went from being queers in the pejorative sense. It might, for some of the younger listeners, it might be worth reminding them that queer was a, was and still to many gay people still is con considered a, a pejorative expression. Right. Um, much like the N word, uh, you know, is is for is for black people, um, and gay people were social outcasts. Uh, it was illegal. Same sex behavior was illegal in every state in the country. You could be sent to a mental institution. It was considered a sin from every major religion. It was really an unspeakable crime, right? The 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 love that dare not speak its name. 
Um, and then we went through a period, I would say, beginning in the 90s uh, with increasing social acceptance uh, of gay people and finally reaching a crescendo, you could say, around 2015 with the, uh, the victory of gay marriage by Supreme Court fiat. But even in the years after, we've come to see that gay marriage is now broadly accepted by the American people, including by a majority of Republicans. And I would say that was the, 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 the phase of you know, gay people seeking um, basically bourgeois equality, uh, the right to be married, you know, the right to be as miserable as straight people, mm-hmm. <laughs> as um, Kinky Friedman said, uh, the right to serve in the military, uh, the right to adopt children, you know, small c conservative values. Um, that was really the aim and the, the purpose of the gay movement, basically seeking integration or assimilation into mainstream American life. And once that happened, I'm sad to say, um, we've now reverted back to being queers, but not by the American majority, not by our adversaries. It's more by the people who now run these organizations and dominate the discourse in the LGBTQIA plus movement who embrace marginality. Um, they embrace being outsiders. Uh, they don't want the assimilation that I would say the vast majority of gay people strove for. Um, and you're seeing that now, I think, a lot with the um, the trans movement. And I want to distinguish between you know individual trans people and the movement that speaks in their name, which I think is seeking things that are not not embraced by the by, by, by the mainstream of, of the American people or the trans community, you know, trans women in sports or the medicalization of, of gender dysphoric youth, all these issues now that you see being debated in, as part of the kind of culture war are really extreme. And we, we had sort of thought that gay rights had been settled and was no longer a culture war issue. And now all of a sudden, you know, it's it's been thrust back into the cult. It really at, at at the center of a lot of these cultural war conversations is is LGBTQ rights, um, and there's a lot going on. It's there's a lot being conflated in that LGBTQ acronym, right? We're not really talking about gay and lesbian equality anymore. We're talking about other things. We're talking about mostly the trans issue. You know, this this introduction of of the non-binary category, which is something that didn't exist until a couple of years ago. Um, and this really troubles me, and I and I think we're already seeing a backlash towards gay people, um, and actually support for gay marriage. Strangely, well, or, or not so strangely, depending on how you look at it, has actually gone down over the past couple of years. And some people would attribute that to, oh, it's a resurgence of the far right in this country. And I don't think that's what it is. I think it's a lot of people looking at this broad umbrella issue of LGBTQ or, or queerness and not liking what they see. And things that had already been settled, like gay marriage and gays in the military, are now coming under suspicion again because some people are thinking, well, they told us if we approved gay marriage, that that would be the end of it. And it wouldn't lead to all these other you know, issues coming down the pike. I mean, I remember, Jonah, and I'm sure you remember too, having to debate whether or not allowing gay marriage would lead to the legalization of pedophilia mm-hmm. and bestiality. And polygamy. I mean, and polygamy was a big part of that argument. Yeah, polygamy is on now, its way. <laughs> polygamy is on its way. And so I think that's why you've seen, you know, um, very strong supporters of gay marriage on the center right, like myself and Jonathan Rauch and Andrew Sullivan, 
and and other people um, have been sort of so you know adamantly uh, opposing this direction that the movement has taken, and so it's just it's just it's just troublesome to me, and I'm concerned about the direction that it's that it's going in and what the consequences will be. Yeah, so I mean, I, I'm with you on this. I, you know, I was a lagging, not a leading indicator on a lot of these issues in the 90s and into the early, you know, I was, it was funny. I was in favor, when I first came out for legalized domestic partnership instead of marriage, um, when I did it, I did it early enough that all these people on the right attacked me for surrendering, right? And then I held on to it long enough for all these people on the left <laughs> to attack me. And it's sort of like, you know, Howard Dean's original position on gay marriage stuff was within five years was seen as right wing by a lot of people on the left, even though when he did it, it was seen as crazy left wing, you know, because the, the attitudes changed so fast. And I, I, I feel as someone who was persuaded by Jonathan Rausch and Andrew Sullivan um, on this precise argument about the bourgeoisification of gay life, um, which I'm a bourgeois for every bourgeoisie for everybody guy, right? I, I, it's a it's on the remnant bingo card for this podcast of how often I'll talk about how disgusting I think it is to talk about bourgeois traditional family values as a white thing, as if like non-white people can't have access to it because like the values and habits that you put into like achieving that sort of middle class lifestyle are really important to take people out of poverty. And they're really important to have a, a fulfilling and rich life and all of that kind of stuff. And to tell people that like you're selling out to some other identity politic model um, is, I think, kind of hateful and cruel and, and fundamentally evil. And I think the same argument applies about gay people. And, and so I get really pissed off about the what I feel is a little bit of a bait and switch or a Mott and Bailey on this. Because the arguments that I had to be talked out of about how this is going to lead to you know, polygamy and, and all these kind of other things. I can't open the New York Times without reading another piece or, or New York Magazine about another piece about here are the five things you want to know if you want to try out polyamory, you know, and all this kind of stuff. I, I would just point out that that's straight people that who are who are doing that. I agree. Polyamory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, but this is part of my problem is that it turns out that the real problem aren't the gay people. The yes. real problem are the straight people <laughs> yes. who who want to be transgressive and and rebellious. And this is the other point I make in my essay. This term queer now does a lot of work. You know, and if you actually look at, if you actually look at the polling on who identifies as being a member of the LGBT community, actually go through the numbers. We're now at a point now where a plurality of people who identify as LGBTQ are functionally straight people, right? Because most of them are bisexual women or women who claim to be bisexual who are actually in heterosexual relationships, right? So, but because this term queer is now so expansive, it basically can include anyone who just, you know, maybe they kissed a member of the same gender when they were in college, right? Or maybe they dyed, the, maybe they dyed their hair blue. I mean, that's sort of a, a joke, but it's, it's becoming true. And just to give you an indication of how quickly this word queer has been um, adopted. I mean, I wrote a column for the Yale Daily News when I was a college student there in 2005 um, about the word queer and why I hated it so much. And I went on to the website of the Human Rights Campaign, which was then and probably still today the most influential LGBT rights organization. 
They did not have the word queer at all on their website, except once, and it was to refer to the television show Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Right, so it just wasn't in. It was just not considered a an appropriate term. It was still considered a slur. Whereas now, if you go on the website of the of of the Human Rights Campaign, good luck finding the words gay or lesbian anywhere. <laughs> it's all queer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that says a lot because what does the word queer mean? It means odd. It means strange. It means you know not mainstream, not typical, atypical. And so the embrace of that word is more than just an aesthetic. Um, trend. I mean, it really does kind of describe and really em- em- um, emphasize and, and demonstrate where this movement has gone. It's about being transgressive. It's about, you know, going against the norms. Um, and look, I have nothing wrong with, with people living the lives they want to live. That's perfectly acceptable. This is a free country. I believe in, in individual rights and whatnot. But I don't think is in, that, that, that that should be the representative of the movement of the broad community of LGBT people who, by the way, come in all different shapes and sizes and political um, viewpoints, you know, and it's actually interesting, you know, Trump increased his support among LGBT voters from 2016 to 2020. And I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if he's increased it over the past four years, which I actually think is a good sign, even though I'm like you, I'm a, I'm a never Trump guy. I think it demonstrates that the salience of, 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 LGBT issues among gay people or LGBT people has decreased, right? And that LGBT people are becoming like the rest of the population, um, and that they're able to vote in their and they're choosing their political um, identity based on other issues. It's not solely the identity issue of I'm LGBT, therefore I'm going to vote a particular way. If I had a magic wand, I'm not saying it's the first I would wish for more <laughs> magic wands, but yeah. uh, if I had a magic wand of with with, with some juice in it. It wouldn't be the first thing I'd do with it, but I would figure out a way to get the various members of the coalition of the oppressed, you know, the various identity politics groups, to vote exactly like the median voter. That's all. I'm not saying they all have to be right-wingers or anything like that, or or I don't even know what right-winger might mean in this context anymore. But, like, cognitive dissonance and the, 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 the positive creative destruction that would come to a whole slew of political institutions if they could no longer claim to be representative of those of these various groups would be this is a very liberal dream right small l liberal dream of it's sort of happening from from my sense of it it's happening with i don't mean this in a pejorative phrase but i think you know what i mean actual gay people like <laughs> gay people who are actually gay who live a gay you know life and lifestyle <laughs> yeah, like, like like life and lifestyle. I mean, like they're gay people. They're not. They're not. They're they're not. It's when they, when you ask them if they're gay, it's not a social desirability response for pollsters. It's like, yeah, that's who I am, right? And it's because this is, is a very broad indictment I've got. It's. Well, I mean, I'll put it in the form of a question because I'm I'm overtired and I'm in a ranting kind of mood. How much of this is a very old phenomenon? of social movements achieving success, but the people in the movement don't want to fold up shop and go home and get normal jobs. So they have to find some new cause to justify their fundraising for these various groups, the, you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center or the Human Rights Campaign or, and that kind of thing. It's a huge part of it. And I don't want to sound too cynical because I think there's an ideological component too. I do think that these people are genuinely 
revolutionary, right? In the sense that I talked about the assimilationist model of gay rights, which is wanting to achieve equality and joining the institutions, the bourgeois institutions. And then there's people who want to overturn those institutions. And that was always uh, a factor in the gay movement. There were always that those sort of revolutionary, you could say, the gay liberationists, right? These were people who were never on board with gay marriage. They didn't want to um, join a patriarchal institution. They certainly didn't want access to the U.S. military, which was a racist colonial enterprise. Um, so there's always been that strain in the movement. The issue is, is that really beginning in the 80s when the AIDS crisis emerged and the gay movement really professionalized and it really got serious, right? Because it had to, because there was life or death issues at stake. Um, and you had really up until 2015, I would say, the professionals were running these organizations. And look, by and large, they were almost all Democrats, okay? They were almost all liberal. But they were mainstream moderate people who wanted to achieve the goals um, that I've described before. And those liberationist types were shunted to the side. They were a distraction and, dare I say, even an embarrassment in many ways. And then what happened was once equality was achieved, all those folks basically left, right? And they went off to do other things. And those institutions... To have normal should, lives, which is what the point of the whole movement absolutely, was, right? Absolutely. Or they pursued other political, you know, political sure. jobs, right? You know, like maybe they went off into de democratic politics or whatnot. And then these movements got overtaken, where now, if you look at them, they are basically BLM slash radical trans organizations. Um, and, you know, I look at these websites, I, I'll, I'll look at the agendas, I'll listen to the rhetoric, and I talk to a lot of gay people who feel the same way. These organizations don't represent us anymore. In many cases, we actually think they're at cross-purposes, right? Because if you... I don't, I don't want to get all into the weeds of the transgender issue, but... You know, if you look at some of the claims, the, the foundational claims of the transgender movement, which is, you know, basically, you know, young, young people who are gender nonconforming. So the, the boy who is effeminate and likes to wear his sister's dresses or the girl who's a tomboy and likes to play with trucks. They're basically arguing that those kids are trans, you know, not that they're not that they're gender nonconforming boys or girls, the vast majority of whom, as we know, intuitively will grow up to be gay adults. They're claiming that those kids are trans, and so we well, well, that that to me is something that is just completely um, at cross purposes with with with, with gay identity. It, it represents a real threat to gay identity. So, not enough gay people are speaking out about that in in the medicalization of young people, young gay people. I mean, we used to hear a lot about conversion therapy in this country, right? Which was usually you know Christian evangelical groups. That would that would take you know young kids who were gay and try to make them straight. It's a really uh, horrific, psychologically, psychiatrically condemned practice, which is now illegal in many states and is not is not widely done anymore because most people recognize how fruitless and, and harmful it is. We're now seeing a different form of of conversion therapy where we have young gay kids basically being told, "No, you're actually trans." Right. Um, and so that's something that's very disturbing and, and that I think a lot of gay people are uncomfortable with. Um, and you hear these are con these are conversations that are going on sort of, you know, in like whisper rooms. They're not they're not being held out loud. You know, there's there's a few of us who are speaking out against it. But um, it just goes to show you that that, that, that the, these these organizations that claim to speak for the LGBT community are not are not doing it. They're speaking for a, a radical minority at this point. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. 
Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I think the groomer rhetoric goes way too far yeah absolutely and is, absolutely and is, is kind of dangerous at the same time like i have a friend dear friend who i'll just say lives on the west coast and at his school is at his kids very progressive school they just kept him home during sexual awareness week because uh they learned from their older kid not to send their younger kids to it <laughs> after having gone through it and the example he gave me and this was years ago um was they're asking like seven, eight, nine, ten year old boys, right? You know, um, early grade school boys, what is your sexuality, right? Or whatever. And then they say, well, do you like boys or girls? Now, or, or do you like girls, right? And so, like, I don't know what you were like in grade school, but the rules when I was in grade school was that until you were at least about 12, the correct answer to do you like girls is either I don't know or yuck. Yeah. And this kid says, I don't know. And the response from teachers is, okay, that means you're questioning. And I don't think they're going to make this kid gay. I don't think they're going to make yeah. him necessarily trans. But what they are doing is they're introducing sort of age inappropriate sexuality into young kids as part of an agenda. And it, and that just, it, it pisses me off and it would piss me off if the issues weren't about homosexuality. I mean, it's just like there there's the, a lot of the book banning talk and some things have gone way mm. too far on the, on that stuff. Yeah. But a lot of it is just about age appropriateness. Uh, totally. And it, it gets, and the problem is we don't have a lot of people like you. We have a lot of people, we have conversations between gargoyles on opposing parapets, you know, yes, <laughs> and, and the rest of us are like, this all sounds crazy. But the danger for gay people is if you're going to push people to choose between two different kinds of crazy, the median American isn't going to choose hardcore, you know, you know, drag queen story hour for everybody kind of stuff. They're going to go the other way. It's a dangerous situation. And I think it's a real tragedy, Jonah, because I think, you know, like I said, around 2015, we, we actually reached an amazing point in American life where... I think a, plura a, a, a majority, a healthy majority of Americans became comfortable with the idea of 
gayness and equality for their gay and lesbian neighbors and having goodwill towards their gay and lesbian neighbors. Obviously, there are pockets of the country where that's not true. I'm not denying it. You know, there are conservative parts of the country where it's very difficult to be gay. Okay. But just when we reach this point of sort of acceptance, that's when the radicals, the radical queers, you know, decide to go way overboard and pushing stuff that's inappropriate, that's that's not acceptable. And look, you know, when I was growing up, you know, 25, 30 years ago, um, yeah, it would have been nice to have had young adult books in the library that had gay characters. That really wasn't, there really weren't books like that when I was growing up. But now, you know, I look at some of these books that are being banned, quote unquote, and I hate that term because there, no book is banned in the United States, okay? And I'll actually tell a story. When my book was coming out about a year and a half ago, I was meeting with another gay author to talk to him about marketing and publicity strategies. This was in right at the height of sort of the DeSantis, you know, don't say gay, book banning frenzy. And I was asking him, you know, how do I publicize market my book? And we were at, eating at a restaurant in New York and he sort of looked over his shoulders, leaned in and he said, try to get your book banned. <laughs> because because getting, getting your book banned is the best thing to do to get attention for it in publicity for sure. So, so this is a really cynical debate that's going on um, about book banning. But I've looked at some, you know, the, the, the number one quote unquote banned book in America, I looked at it, is this book called Gender Queer. It's not a book that's appropriate for early teenage students. Um, it's yeah. extremely it's extremely sexually explicit, right? And so I think a lot of these debates that are going on, yes, are there some troglodytes who want to cleanse all libraries of any mention whatsoever of homosexuality? Sure. But that is not a fair characterization of, I think, a lot of parents who are not necessarily anti-gay or homophobic. They just don't want any sort of sexually explicit material Right. being inter inter introduced to, 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 to children of a, of, a, of a certain age. And I actually, I, I really do think that most Americans um, have goodwill around this issue. And most Americans are not homophobic. Um, I've seen that in my own life. I mean, I've witnessed an incredible transformation in this country just in my own life. When I was, you know, coming out of the closet, 17, 18, freshman in college, and today, it's an, it's, an, it's an amazing transformation for the good. It's an extremely positive transformation. And it makes me very proud to be an American because I know that it's only in a country like this one, you know, a free and democratic country where we have pluralism and free expression and we're able to persuade people. It's only in a country like that where such, such change is, is possible. Um, and so it's really difficult for me to, to get alarmist about this. I mean, the... The LGBT groups were saying about Donald, you know, Donald Trump is the most anti-LGBT president in American history, which is just preposterous. I mean, I, I used to joke that he was America's he was America's first gay president because he was such a ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, he was like a drag queen, um, just this outrageous, you know, with the hair. He and does the, wear a lot of makeup. Yeah. And the makeup. <laughs> and he would da he was dancing to the village people. He was dancing yeah, to yeah. YMCA, if you recall. And you know, I don't think I need to tell your listeners what YMCA is about. Um, <laughs> Elton John was his favorite singer. So the, the trajectory has been a positive one. And this backlash that you hear about, the backlash to LGBT rights, it's not. It's a backlash, in my opinion, to the extremism of a certain segment of the transgender movement. Okay. It's not a backlash to LGBT rights. It's a, 
in some cases, you know, reasonable um, opposition to some extreme claims and extreme policies that are being pushed by a small but loud minority of queer activists. Yeah. So, I mean, the analogy to Black Lives Matter is actually pretty strong, right? Because the this is what I was getting at, like the Mont and Bailey stuff is like at the level of grand generalization that gets people out in the streets. Black Lives Matter is a generally unobjectionable thing, right? It's against police brutality. It's for treating black people with dignity and all these kinds of things. But then you go and you look at what the actual Black Lives Foundation people are about. It's anti-Zionist. It's Marxist. It's communist, really. Yeah. Yeah. The crazy Marxist and corrupt as hell. Right. And so you, which I I don't think you can make the case about like human rights campaign. I don't think there's a lot of corruption there. At least I've never seen any evidence of it. They're true believers. Not corruption, but they're raising, these groups are raising a fortune of money. Yeah. No, there's a grossness to it. Like the ACLU's fundraising is gross, but it's not, they're not buying houses in Beverly Hills with it is my point. And, um, and the problem is, is that the, you know, I, I don't use this in the pejorative as the way I sometimes do, but the average Fox viewer, mm. they hear about all the corruption stuff and they're like, oh, the whole thing's a racket or the whole thing's an ideological revolutionary tip of the spear thing. And the C- CNN or MSNBC viewer hears that these people are fighting for civil rights. And, and so then everyone's using the same terminology, <laughs> but the, the Fox viewer is saying, oh, BLM is a bunch of Marxist, revolutionary, corrupt, you know, yada, yada, yadas. And the MSNBC viewer then sees, you know, Joy Reid will then take a clip of that and say, see how they hate civil rights organizations. And so it's, it, the, 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 the violent disagreement using the same language becomes so poisonous. And so it's like with the LGBTQ stuff, I object to some of the, the trans stuff. Um, you know, I, 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 I basically think the, the trans and sports issue is a perfectly legitimate issue, hard one to figure out how to deal with, but like there are good arguments on both sides. And I tend to be on the right of those on the right side of a lot of those arguments. But when you tell people who have one association for LGBTQ, this popular front notion of gayness or queerness, that someone is anti-trans, they think, oh, that also means they're against two gay dudes at Home Depot trying to get their car seat in. And it's they're, they're just different things culturally totally. and, and otherwise. Yes. Yeah. And, and what the movement is now trying to do, it's trying to conscript all gay people in this, you know, struggle. Um, when if you actually did a real poll of gay people, I think, as you said, real gay people, genuine gay people, I think you'd find a lot of political diversity. Um, and opposition to what these groups are claiming to be fighting for, certainly on the transgender issue. One of the things that really bugs me is, or one of the reasons why I think it is so poisonous for the left to buy into a lot of this stuff is I'm old enough to remember, my wife wrote like the first critical book about Title IX when it was still just about sports. And it was a losing battle. The right fully embraced women in sports, which my wife was never against. She was against like the chicanery involved in yeah. what what Title IX was doing to men's sports, among other things. But um, my wife was a big basketball player in, in high school. Um, but we had this huge cultural campaign to celebrate girls playing sports, acculturated an entire generation, basically my generation of dads, 
to be really into their girls' sports. And then you tell these dads to who have gone against the grain of what their parents taught them to be inclusive and small L liberal about women in sports and really celebrate it and encourage their, their their girls. And then you tell them, oh, and by the way, biological males can now compete against your kid and your your girl in soccer. And they're just like, this is BS. I mean, and 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 I get the desire for inclusion, but like the transaction is a is a losing one for the left on this stuff. And inclusion is not does not trump every single argument. Absolutely. I think it's politically suicidal. And it's also talk about the patriarchy, right? Can you think of anything more patriarchal than allowing biological men not only to compete in women's sports, but to have access to women's rape shelters and battered women's shelters and women's prisons, which is also part of this of this campaign. I know it's on the extreme end of it, but again, it's there. And um, it's an absolute political loser. And I, I and I and I really worry and I'm and I'm concerned that it'll it'll have a negative externalities for gay and lesbian people, you know, who really have nothing to do with this. But again, by association, we've sort of been conscripted into this into this battle. And I and I worry, and you might have a better read on this, whether that average Fox viewer who might now finally have been comfortable with gay marriage is thinking, well, well, you know, right, it really is a slippery slope. And, you know, they told us that it wasn't going to lead to all these things. And now it is. And now I'm rethinking my support of of gay marriage. I don't think that gay marriage is going to be repealed. Certainly, I, the Supreme Court's not going to do it. I think that's a lot of fear-mongering from the left to kind of drum up, you know, hysteria and and whatnot. But um it is it is concerning just in terms of kind of the general um public attitudes towards towards gay people. I am I am concerned that this is going to redound back negatively. I I think there's a good chance of it. I mean, it gets to So here's the thing. I mean, like you're more left of center than I am, but you're still kind of, you're like a, you know, neoconservative type, but on the left side a little bit, you know, in the Bill Galston kind of world, right? But, but you're a small, you're a liberal, believe in facts, you believe in pluralism, you believe in the constitution and all, and you, you definitely believe in like America foreign policy strength, all these kinds of things, right? And so, and so by our very nature, we believe in the importance of American institutions and that makes us small c conservative in the sense that we're not radicals. We do not want to tear everything down. Your whole argument about gay marriage is that this is an institution that people should, that gay people should have access to, not that it should be torn down. The 60s radicals were all about smash monogamy and, you know, smash marriage and all that. That was never the argument, right? The problem is on the left and the right, not to get all horseshoe theory, but there are a lot of people who, I think in part because of Trump, have seen have gotten a glimpse of a world without the guardrails where radicalism can be a viable option you know the guys at compact they call it a radical journal tucker carlson every clip i see of him he talks about how he's been radicalized including by cheap groceries in moscow right, right. <laughs> by the way, of all the things to be ra- of all the things to be of all the things to be radicalized by, that's his that's his Kronstadt moments, right? You know, <laughs> he's going to the Moscow exactly, yeah. you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I defended the Constitution and the founders and American values for a long time, but then I found out I could get bread much cheaper in Moscow <laughs> if I was using dollars, and I've turned my back on all of them now, right? I mean, it's like, it's crazy stuff. But, you know, so like Chris Rufo, who I think is a mixed bag, um, there are things where... There are places where I'll agree with them and there are places I won't. 
Um, after this Alabama decision came out, I saw him on Twitter talking about how, you know, this opens up a vista to basically return sex to the, the to its real purpose, which is procreation and nothing else. And to get out of this sort of whole recreational sex thing. Now, I think that's stupid. I think that's politically stupid. That's as stupid as de- that's a, that's a right, right wing version of defund the police. Go tell bikers for Trump that we are going to ban recreational sex. <laughs> tell <laughs> tell Trump. That. Tell Trump you're going to ban recreational yeah, exactly. sex. <laughs> <laughs> and but uh, but this is what you get. This are the post liberal thing. You know, the left has post liberals all over the place. People don't call them that, but that's what they are. Um, Foucault was a post liberal. Yeah, I met I met someone recently, and I asked him, "What what's your political kind of ideology orientation? How do you define yourself?" And he said, I'm a liberal and a conservative, but neither a progressive nor a reactionary. And I thought, yeah, that's that kind of where I am. Yeah, that's kind of where I am, too. Anyway, so like it's it seems to me that the, the, the queer stuff is just part and parcel of this larger trend where no one wants to defend the basic foundations, the basic institutions. Boring old small L liberal democracy and, you know, moderation, right. political moderation and just being in the middle and not believing in rad. I mean, you know, my, my, my old friend Sorab Amari, I have to check in on him every day to see what he is. You know, one yeah. day, he, one, one day he's a Catholic integralist. The next day he's a, he's a new, a new deal, uh, Biden, I don't know. I mean, there's just the new. It's just a, it's a, it's. I don't like politics to be exciting. Right. Maybe that makes me old fashioned, but I don't want politics to be an exciting pursuit. Um, I think that's actually bad when people get really excited. Not in you know, ex- you can get excited for a candidate, you can get excited for an, an election or whatnot, but seeking your salvation, your meaning through a political movement, I think, is not a good sign for a society. And I think we're seeing that on both sides now. Yeah. I, 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 I'd say my most fundamentally conservative position is I am against political enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, on a fundamental, in the way, yes. in the sense that you're talking about it, you know, um, like, and, and, but this is the problem is that identity has become so suffused with politics. And since it's, you're selling out to the man, if you're, um, a boring old style heterosexual that like, you know, you, there's some of these surveys at some of these schools where these girls are, you know, like where like 96% of them say they're somewhere on the, the spectrum is, and of, oh. which is it's nuts, you know, and it's, but so I, I want to ask you about this and I know I'm, I'm, I'm unintentionally filibustering here. So I'll stop. I'm waxing Padhoretian. How much of the transgender identification stuff, the non, I forget, Transgender is wrong term. How much of the non-binary stuff do you think is essentially mimetic? That it's a social contagion and little else? Entirely. Because I don't I still don't to this day understand what non-binary is. I mean, is it is it you I mean, you can't be both sexes. I guess there's I mean, there's a very small number of people who are intersex, right? But even there, they are either male or female. They might have secondary sexual characteristics and that they might have, you know, t- testes and a vagina or whatnot, but their chromosomal structure is male or female. So are you just talking about being androgynous? Because if you are, there's nothing new to that. Okay. David Bowie was androgynous. Lots of people have been androgynous throughout history. Um, so yeah, the non-binary thing I really think is just sort of a, a status marker. It's a, it's a way for people 
to announce that they are not quote unquote normal, um, that there's something different, that there's something new, that they're part of this, you know, identity vanguard. Um, and I think it's not a, it's not, it's not coincidental that this identity emerged in the years after gay marriage was legalized, right? Because once gay, once gayness, once homosexual, once homosexuality became bourgeois and once, um, gay people could marry and join the military, it's not sexy anymore. It's not transgressive anymore to be gay, right? So there, a new, a new, a new identity had to be forged, had to be incepted for people who wanted to distinguish themselves from the masses. And that's really what non-binary, that's what that's taken on. Um, there's nothing wrong with being a girl who's masculine in some ways. There's nothing wrong with being a guy who's effeminate or, you know, or, or who being someone who doesn't conform to sex, to, to, to sex or gender-based stereotypes. And that's not unusual. And I mean, look, all gay people, by virtue of being attracted to members of the same sex, are gender non-conforming. So I just I don't see anything new about this non-binary category. I think it's, um, I think it's kind of a fad. Uh, I've I've yet and, and and the thing that makes no sense to me there are people who describe themselves as transgender non-binary, which is literally impossible. It's a paradox, right? Because to be trans, <laughs> I don't know, no, but there are people who do this who say I'm well, I'm a trans non-binary woman. I, I, like every word in that description is false. I mean, it, it makes no sense. Because to be trans, you are literally crossing, right, the gender binary. You're either a man who identifies as a woman or a woman identifies as a man. You have to accept the existence of that gender binary to understand yourself as, as a transgender person. So how can you be trans and non-binary? No one's bothered to explain this. So, I mean, this does get to another danger that you raised in the essay. And also is that, again, one of the most compelling arguments for the mainstreaming of gaze into American life was that's not a choice. Absolutely. You know, the argument I always found very compelling was you tell young men, young gay men, that they, they can't have access to marriage, they can't have access to a traditional family and traditional relationships. They're also grotesque if they're promiscuous. And to tell a young, horny dude that you're disgusting and therefore you can't be part of a this institution and you're disgusting because you're not participating in this institution is cruel and unfair, yes. right? You know, like Absolutely. institution civilized people. And, and, but now I see it every now and then I try not to read these op-eds because I just get exhausted by them and I get angry. But, uh, every now and then you see these pieces from people saying how, you know, your sexuality is a choice. And if it's a choice that opens up a permission structure for, if you can be radicalized by cheap bread in Moscow, you can be radicalized by, you know, drag queen story hour just as much. I mean, again, visit your friend Zorob. And, um, if gay people, real gay people aren't going to maintain this distinction that they didn't have a choice and they're supposed to be part of this popular front movement, which is getting all of the attention where they are making a choice. Again, this prototypical Fox viewer is going to say, well, they say it's a choice. So let's like make it more difficult to make that choice because we don't think that's a good choice. And that's that's a dangerous path. That's the way back to conversion therapy. Well, it's a weird convergence between the far right and the far left in that they both claim that homosexuality is a choice. <laughs> um, and right. it's clearly not. Um, I mean, this was actually a, a mainstay of the traditional gay rights movement was that it's not a choice. 
Um, it's hardwired. You know, you can debate whether or not it's nature or nurture or whatnot, but there's always going to be two to five percent of the population. I don't believe the Kinsey figure of ten percent. Every society has homosexuals. It's been with us since the dawn of history. You can't change it. Not only can you not change it, it's really damaging and destructive to try to change it. Um, and so, yeah. And now you have the, the the queer folks have always argued the opposite that it's that it is a choice that it can be that you can wake up one day and be this or that. They argue the same now with with gender, by the way, or that or sex really that 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 gender is something that's constantly changing. There's this, this concept of gender queer. Um, which is that one's gender can change not only by the year or the day, but even by the hour. Um, and it's this sort of mystical belief system. And I just find it r ridiculous. And also, I think it's really harmful to young people because it's very confusing for them. Um, and I think we should just go back to the, you know, like you're either gay or straight or there's a small percentage of people who are bisexual. And that's pretty much those, th those are your those are your options. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you mentioned before the intersex thing, and it's very frustrating for me on the because the intersex, if you, whenever you read like the New York Times coverage of the stuff, and then you go into the comments, intersex is expected to be this it is a scientific linchpin that justifies the fifty six genders and all this kind of stuff, and it's like, but and it proves that there isn't a binary and it's a spectrum and all this kind of stuff. And the problem with that, um, among the problems with that, is that the very word intersex means between the two sexes. And it is it is actually sort of the, it's, it's, it's not the exception that disproves the rule, it's the exception that, that proves the rule. And you get, you know, like Scientific American is going this way, lots of these places are going, um, you know, it's, 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 it's making its way into STEM in a way that kind of truly shocks me. Um, and I don't know how you reverse that, but I think it will be reversed. And in the future, people are going to look back at it with some embarrassment. I find this actually applies to a lot of progressive doctrine, which is they take an extremely small section of humanity, um, the most marginalized, quote unquote, and, they, and, and everything in our society needs to be restructured um, around that tiny, tiny minority, right? So it's like, we're going to upend women's sports because, you know, 0.05% of the population is trans and we need to accommodate that 0.05%. Or you look at, you know, criminal justice and whatnot. I mean, I'll just tell you a little anecdote. I was at the library here in Washington, D.C. a couple weeks ago and there was um, someone very loud. I mean, this was clearly someone I think who was unhoused, to use the politically correct term, um, was in the library making a lot of noise. And I went up to the librarian and asked, is there anything you can do to quiet this person, considering it is a library and you're a librarian? And when I was growing up, librarians were known for one thing, which is going around shushing people. And the librarian told, and the, the, the librarian just told me flat out, no, we, we can't do that. We can't do that, right? So it's everything, everyone else has to accommodate themselves to the disruptive homeless person in the library. And I feel like a lot of like progressive thought and social policy is designed with this in mind. Like we're going to take the most, um, in their the view, the most marginalized identity person category, and because we assign we assign virtue um, proportionally to how much marginalization you have, right? It's, it's why it's why the the trans woman of color has become this you know epic figure 
in progressive in, in progressive discourse, right? Where everything revolves around the trans woman of color, right? Because you're taking, you know, male or female, you know, wo- you know, the 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 woman is the most marginalized in that, and then you know, of color, right? And then trans. It's like you're just stacking the identity categories one on top of the other, and all of society needs to be restructured to accommodate that small individual group, as opposed to incorporate as as opposed to telling. The disruptive homeless man. Actually, you need to behave like the other people in this building and shut up. We all need to restructure society to accommodate you, and that's that's what I think a lot. I think that's what drives a lot of progressives these days. Yeah, so it's funny. I, I agree with you. I also think, though, like, and part of this is a result of me either being expelled from or shedding a lot of political allegiances um, in the last five years is that I more and more, the first place I look for causality of things is about less about the ideology and more about the culture generally. And so like, there's a, there's a strain of libertarianism that runs through the American left that we just don't call libertarianism for whatever reason. And so you know, uh, um, and so this idea that the individual standing up to the group is the moral essence, is the irreducible moral center of our politics. And I think this is one of the wonderful things about America. I like this in general, but like all commitments, it can be taken to an extreme and deformed. I do believe that the individual is the irreducible unit of American politics and Ameri- and, and should be. But that doesn't mean, but what, what gets lost is the cultural imperative that the majority owes the individual or the minority respect, but the individual and the minority owes the majority respect as well. It can't be a one-way street. Otherwise you get, just as a matter of prudence, if everything is being bent to the whims of an individual or a very small group of people who will not compromise, will not assimilate, will not work with the majority in good faith, then the majority is going to be like, screw this. Why are we bending over backwards constantly for these people when it's never good enough? And it's just a matter of social peace that has to be the value. And, um, and this is a problem on the right, you know, where we constantly are lionizing people who think that they are heroic for being incredible jackasses, for being rude. I mean, there's, being, there's actually... The same a, thing on the left. Well, yeah, there, there's... Do, do, do you remember the Kim Davis case? This was the, um, the county clerk in, like, Kentucky or something who refused yeah, to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. She refused to give marriage licenses to gay couples. And she was claiming that this was a violation of her religious freedom. Now, look, I'm a, you know, among gay writers, I'm a very strong supporter of religious freedom rights. I support the Supreme Court decisions in the cake cases, right, where the baker didn't want to make a case because he's a private individual. He's running a private business. He has a religious objection to gay marriage. He shouldn't be forced to make a cake celebrating a gay wedding. I'm fine with that. But if you're a government employee, right, and you work in the county clerk's office and you're in, and gay marriage is legal and it's your job to dispense marriage certificates to people, you can't claim um, that you're, you need to find a new job. Yeah, no, and, but you find this, and I tell you, I, I, I think you're absolutely right, and it, the, what drives me crazy about the way the left talks about this stuff is, and it, it's 
people are bored to tears and they can see it coming if I start talking about Latinx or, or birthing persons or any of these kinds of things. But they think they're being inclusive, which they are, of a very small group of people. Right. And they're being exclusive of a very large group of people. <laughs> at, the, at the expense of the vast majority of Latinos who not only don't agree or don't identify with Latinx, they actively despise that term. They really don't right. like it. And I'm not sure if it's the same numbers among gay people. I think there are a lot of gay people who like the term queer. It's mostly a generational thing. And I'm kind of an old, I'm kind of an old fogey when it comes to this. I like, I'm adamantly opposed to it. And, you know, you talk to older gay men and they really hate this term because for them, it was a trauma. It was a traumatizing word. That was the word that they were called, that they were bullied with on the school playground and whatnot. Right. And we'll see. Maybe the word queer will be adopted by most gay people within the next 20 or 30 years. I think it's now being forced on us. Um, but we'll see. I mean, language changes. Yeah. Explain this to me, because I, I was recently lectured to, I won't reveal by who, but a famous left-of-center uh, personality um, who was explaining to me that queer doesn't mean gay. Well, queer encompasses, it, 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 it encompasses not only not heterosexual people, it encompasses trans people, it encompasses bisexual people, but again, it's like ever proliferating, right? I mean, I don't even, I'm sure there are other identities that are, that are included under the queer banner. But does, you don't run into the problem of like, like, so my dad, of blessed memory, um, he was against gay marriage, old school guy, very, we had, my mom had lots of gay friends around the house all the time, whatever. Very rare that my dad was anything other than gentlemanly and, 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 and friendly and all that kind of stuff. But he just was against gay marriage because he was that kind of guy. And his argument, I remember at the time he was very good. He had an Irving Crystal-like ability to boil down complex things to little, little, you know, witticisms. And he was like, when I talk to you on the phone and um, you say something about your husband, I shouldn't have to ask a follow-up question, right? He just sort of like, he, he liked clarity of language. And, and I remember him you know, talking about this stuff and like the problem with the whole problem with the queer thing is that it seems to me on the political front, it is a, it's an attempt to smuggle in a popular front mentality, right? It is a way to say that we, that we're all part of this tribe. And the problem is, is that it's very cheap to call yourself queer if you're not gay, not trans, uh, the, the the price of admission is just willingness to say the word unironically, and meanwhile, the, there are actual costs that come with being gay or trans or anything like that. And so it's it's kind of, it's it's bravery on the cheap in a certain way. It's a phenomenon I call I call queer face, um, and you, <laughs> you know, and, and you see, yeah, yeah, it's like the Rachel Doljal of queerness, right? And it's just people who are basically straight claiming to be queer. Um, on the subject of your father opposing gay marriage because he was a you know traditional conservative guy who grew up in a different generation. You know, there are a number of older gay men I'll talk to, uh, and their attitude is basically, well, gay marriage will destroy the institution of homosexuality. Um, <laughs> uh, which is sort of a quaint, you know, added, you know, Sort That's of a very sixties thing, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, a very sixties yeah. <laughs> sort of pre pre Stonewall pre Stonewall um, attitude. I'm not really sure how serious they are about it, but um, that was definitely 
no, you still encounter gay men of a certain generation who think that. I mean, Gore. I think Gore Vidal had that attitude, right? And you know, yeah. is there is there an element? Is there an element? Signorelli, not Signorelli. I think you're thinking of um, Michael Warner, maybe the Sex Panic maybe. guy. Okay. Um, but yeah, there's definitely, and there's there's an element I think of kind of deeply repressed, you know, self hatred in that as well. But that's a subject for another podcast. All right, in the time we have left, as my father might say, let's move on from the gays. <laughs> How dismayed are you about what increasingly looks like us throwing Ukraine to the wolves? And where do you see the situation generally? Um, I think it's really a shame and it's really terrible. And uh, I've been covering the Ukraine conflict since 2014, uh, visiting the country several times since then. You know, we've never seen a land war in, in Europe since World War II. And now we have an old fashioned, you know, mid early, mid early 20th century land war, something that we didn't, too many of us did not think possible. Um, I think we're fooling ourselves if we think this ends at Ukraine. I'm hearing a lot of people say, well, we can negotiate with Putin, just give him a little bit of what he wants. I don't think it's going to end with Ukraine. And I think it's been, again, we hear a lot about all oh, the amount of money we're spending and Ukraine is corrupt and whatnot. This is an incredible investment for the, for the United States. I mean, we're not, we haven't lost a single soldier and we are seriously degrading the Russian military. Um, they've lost hundreds of thousands of troops. They've lost, you know, uh, I can't even count the amount of billions of dollars in military equipment that they've lost. It is, um, it's, it's, it's seriously weakening Russia as a military power. And we're doing it on the cheap. And we're not fighting at all. We're doing it through, you know, the, the heroic and brave Ukrainian people are doing this. So, you know, as to the question of whether or not it's worth it, absolutely. And by the way, all the money we're spending to help Ukraine it's like aid to Israel, too, by the way. It's a subsidy for our own defense industry, right? This is money that's going to... It's, it's American jobs, right? You know, pr producing the, the we weaponry, the armaments, the shells, the artillery. Um, it's, it's a form of lend-lease, right? Which no one looks back on now as being a foolish policy. It was the right policy. So, yeah, I think it's a shame um, were we to uh, abandon Ukraine because without the United States, then they're not going to be able to win this on their own. I mean, for as much as we want the Europeans to contribute more, and they should be, and you know, I agree with Donald Trump on this, absolutely, the Europeans should be paying more of their fair share. Um, they, they don't have enough resources to, to stave off the Russians alone. Um, they need the United States to be, to be contributing and leading the way diplomatically. In this, so I think it's it's a real black mark on um, this country, or it will be, if we abandon the Ukrainians to their fate. I, I wouldn't say I'm pushing back, but I'll, I will, I will, I will compare. I will draw a contrast with a couple of things you said, just for this, which I don't think you'll actually disagree with. First of all, though, uh, so like starting with the subsidy for our weapons industry, I'm totally fine with that because I want. I want a massive new investment in our defense industry, so it doesn't bother me. And I also want to help Ukraine, so that doesn't bother me. The only reason why it's a good argument, I think, though, in, in this debate, is because many of the leading opponents of supporting Ukraine are also champions of industrial policy. And <laughs> they're like, but they're, they reject this place where actually the incentives are aligned because they don't, you know, they're, they're, they're against the Ukraine stuff. Um, but generally speaking, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's a very lefty kind of concession to say, 
oh, we should do something because it helps the munitions industry. I mean, that that's a, you know, I, I, my only point is it's a worthwhile argument to make given to the given the nature of the people who you're trying to yes. persuade. Yes. But on the merits, there's no reason to help anybody just because it's good for our munitions industry. Yes. Um, I'm just answering the claim that, that, that this is a waste of, or that it's just a, it's just a giveaway to, or you know, it's a, it's it's charity or or welfare um, to some foreign country. It's not. It's it's a it's a jobs program for the American worker. And the only other thing I would just sort of push back a little bit, which I also don't think you actually disagree with, is I agree when you when you say I agree with President Trump that these guys should pay their fair share and all that kind of stuff. I agree with what you mean by it. I don't agree with what Trump means by it. Yeah. And because, because Trump talks about it, talks about NATO as if it's some sort of country club. A transaction. Right. And that these countries are, but that these people are in arrears for their dues. And there's very few dues. Right. And so, yeah, I want European allies to have more robust defense budgets. Um, but like, that's a that's a that's a different argument than the way that that Trump frames it, and it's worth pointing out that as a percentage of GDP now, um, most of the countries are spending two percent or more. Yes, and they're also spending more on Ukraine than we are. Yes, um, now Absolutely. and I think in both nominal and in percentage terms, and so it's this is my fundamental problem: is that most of the people I find that are opponents of helping Ukraine are doing it in bad faith. And normally I, I'm, I'm reluctant to say people are doing stuff in bad faith, except when they lie a lot, lying is a really good tell that someone is in, arguing in bad faith because if they had good arguments that they were making in good faith, they wouldn't need to make up stuff. And J.D. Vance and a lot of these people make up stuff because, you know, they actually don't have a good argument on the merits. And that's worth calling out. Yes, I agree. I agree. I'm, we've gone along. I would be happy to talk to you forever. Um, but uh, I will let you go. This was fun. And Thank you. I, I hope you'll come back on sooner rather than later. This is, I was telling you before we started recording, this was um, my faux pas for not having you on back, back on more. But um, this is one of these bourgeois institutions that I want to welcome you to. Be oh, part thank of. you. <laughs> to, in, to integrate and assimilate into. <laughs> That's right. uh, it was great. That no, was great. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Jamie uh, Kerchick has left the studio. Um, I want to apologize to the listeners and to Jamie uh, for the times of, of verbal incontinence on my on my part. Um, I've been it's ten twelve in the morning on Tuesday, and I have been up for seven hours, um, and uh, and and sober for three of them. So, um, just kidding. Um, Anyway, uh, it was great to have Jamie on. Uh, I think this will elicit some interesting discussion in the comments and elsewhere. I highly recommend the book, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. And we'll put a link to the Queer to Gay to Queer um, essay in the show notes as well. Other than that, uh, it was Great to have him on. We will have him back, um, regardless of what the response is in the comments. But I, I suspect it'll be mostly positive. Um, and uh, thank you for listening. And I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Podcast.